Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIP. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 20 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm a Dave Ramsey local provider. also have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. Great day to be here, guys. Yeah, it is a Good great Saturday. day. Another great Saturday, and we're excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We're right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m., yeah, you can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us. You can obviously catch us on the dial at 1230 a.m. We also have a uh, podcast button on the right-hand side. So if you miss the Money Doctors or miss a show uh, or you want to go back and revisit a topic, you can click on that link, and it'll take you back, and it'll show you probably the last four, five, six months, and we have it uh, categorized as well. So it's a great way to, um, to, to catch up with the doctors when you're not in. Yeah, no excuse for not listening to the Money Doctors today. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Um, as John mentioned, you can link to us there and send us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Or you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, guys, I think we have an awesome show. But, you know, before we step into that, um, we've got to talk a little bit about this election cycle we're going through. I mean, it's mm. it's been crazy, hasn't it? Politics, uh, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, today is... Uh, South Carolina Democratic primary. Yes, that's, that's right. right. Yep. That's right. So um, go out and vote are, if you're on the, heading to the polls. Super, if you're on the uh, Democratic side, go vote. And super Tuesday coming up Tuesday, which will probably seal the deal for I think we one are of the wind, candidates. I do. I think we're winding down very quickly to an election between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. I yeah, mean, it's, I, it's starting to look that way, guys. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be entertaining, if nothing else. Yeah, it's he definitely. You know, the rating agents. I mean, the um, the news agencies have to love his ratings. They bring. Oh my I goodness! Mean, I mean, they got to just love this matchup. You know, it just it couldn't be. I mean, it's going to be The Apprentice on steroids. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just going to be an incredible election cycle. I just can't imagine some of the things that are going to be said between the two of them. Yeah, and the voter turnout is really high when when Trump's been in you know in the lead. It is, and that actually you know I mean as kind much as I didn't I didn't think his rhetoric was going to make him competitive in a general election. You know his turnout it it may be enough to put him over the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's had incredible turnout on, for his side. You know for his support. Um, and that's been in primaries. I mean, for a general election, turnout's usually a lot, lot, a lot greater. higher. Right. So, uh, you know, he may push the turnout high enough on the GOP side to make it a very, very uh, close d- race there. Close yeah. race or even, you know, in his favor. He might win overwhelmingly. You just never know. Yeah. I've heard some some interesting predictions. So anyway, regardless of who you're voting for, um, 
nobody can say it's not interesting. <laughs> That's right. This is one of the more interesting ones in a while. And speaking of interesting, we have a very interesting show for you today. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the things we're going to talk about is the top 10 excuses for making bad investment decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, guys, I mean, we're, here we are again. We're, we're in a tough market um, in the middle of a correction. And it's been very turbulent. And we see this time and again, especially when markets get turbulent like this. We see people making excuses to follow their emotions and make some really poor decisions. So we're going to go through the top 10 excuses for making a bad investment decision. So you want to stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great topic there. And then we're going to follow that up with caring for elderly parents. I mean, we have an aging society and a lot of folks are having to take care of not only their own households, but also their their parents as well. And it really is key and, and paramount to make sure that you keep your money situation on track, but also try to help out um, the folks that uh, that raised you um, as well. So we're going to go into some tips and kind of look at how you, how you can do that. That's right. Um, then we're going to take a look at the housing market. And, you know, the question is, what does a, a shrinking amount of mortgage debt, what does that look like for America? And, and how is that kind of affecting our economy? Mm. So, uh, we're going to take a little closer look at the housing numbers right now. So yeah, there's some good numbers out there, and uh, including the mortgage debt. So that'll that'll be an interesting topic. Okay, that leads us up here though to our financial fact of the week. Yeah, this actually comes from the uh, Clinton campaign, and Hi- Hillary uh, Clinton, who is a Democratic candidate, has proposed a four percent tax on individuals, an additional four percent tax, making at least five million dollars. So she's targeting, I guess, maybe the uh, the point one percenters in this. And and the surcharge would impact about one of every 5,000 taxpayers, and it would raise about $15 billion per year over a 10-year period. Um, but, you know, the sad news is, is the government spends $10 billion per day. Yeah, and that's so, like a drop in, it, an, in it the is. proverbial ocean bucket. So these folks that are talking about tax increases, you can only tax so much and solve the problems. There is a spending issue in this country, and that needs to be addressed. Are there some tax loopholes that need to be fixed? Probably. But, you know, just taxing people is not the solution. Well, I can tell you what she's proposed that's much more significant than that, and that is she's proposed waging the wage, raising the wage cap on Social Security and Medicare um, to include and also including unearned income. Mm. So all dividends, interest, um, S corporation, Mm -hmm. money, money from selling real estate, you name it. She wants to tax it for Social Security. That's 15.3%, folks. I mean, if you talk about a tax increase, you lift the cap on Social Security and include all income. And that's a huge tax increase, even for the middle class. So. I kid you not. She's proposing some huge tax yeah. increases. She's kind of just falling into the trap of just repeating what Bernie Sanders yeah, says. Yeah, she's getting a lot of heat. And it is scary. I mean, some of the things she's proposing. I mean, not that I'm against, you know, the, the Democrats. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> don't start thinking I'm well, just a Republican here. The key is, is, you know, these tax increases they talk about, they don't solve the issues. They don't. No, they you, don't. You got to go fix the issues. And, and John, you hit, you hit the nail on the head earlier, though, whenever you said spending. Yep. You know, we we definitely we have a spending problem from uh, the government level all the way to the consumer level. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think you were right on. Exactly. So speaking of bad decisions, (laughs) (laughs) we have the top 10 excuses for making bad investment decisions here. This is an article out of DFA. And, um, 
you know, I mean, us as human beings, we have an astounding facility for self-deception when it comes to our own money. We tend to rationalize our fears and decisions that we know deep down inside are wrong. So instead of just recognizing how we feel and resisting the, the urge to make a poor move, we tend to cut out the middleman. We construct this facade of a logical-sounding argument resulting from our insecurities And these arguments often are nothing more than just this short-term excuse that we use to justify our behavior that runs counter to our long-term goals. Um, So, guys, I mean, we've seen this time and again when markets get a little scary, right? We get a call from someone wanting to go to cash because of some, you know, pundit they heard on TV or uh, the election or what's happening in China, And then once we've heard, uh, once we've had a good quarter, sometimes we'll get people that'll call that'll want to go more aggressive, um, thinking that the market's starting to heat up. So in good times, um, we also get people that want to take out huge chunks of money that they can't afford, maybe to help their kids or to be, uh, you know, irresponsible and buying a car they really can't afford. Uh, We've seen it all. I mean, these result from emotions. Um, Over the past 20 years, we've seen people that just use these 10 excuses that we see time and again to make poor decisions and follow their emotions. So we got number one here on the list. Yeah, number one. I just had a a meeting with um, some clients this last week, and, um, you know, we were talking about the markets are not making sense. They're not logical. And he's a very logical person, you know, engineer type, you know, very, very uh, detailed and so forth. And um, that's the way markets are. Sometimes they are illogical, and sometimes people want to wait until things become clearer. So that's number one. Wait till everything's clear and everything's understood. And that's understandable to feel unnerved by the volatile markets and, the, you know, the silly bickering that's going on in Washington. Um, but waiting for volatility to clear before investing is like waiting for you to, to feel ready to have kids or maybe, you know, wanting, feeling good about going to exercise. Never a perfect time. It's never a perfect time. Happen. It's never going to happen. And uh, with investing, it can result in missing out on some of the best returns in the market. I mean, the stock market is a leading economic indicator. So that, what that means is, is it moves up or down before the economy, which means you're not likely to feel better about things until after the stock market has already moved much higher, which causes you to miss out on a potentially great period. So, you know, things becoming clear ain't going to happen. That's not the way it works. Not going to happen. The market's never has a clear path forward, does it? Nope. Yeah, number two here on the list is I just can't take the risk anymore. Um, You know, by focusing exclusively on the risk of losing money and paying a premium for safety, we end up with, um, you know, we just end up with not enough money for retirement. It's really what it boils down to. I mean, avoiding risk also means missing out on the upside. You need to be realistic about what return you can expect and what risk level you need to accomplish Um, or you need to accomplish your long-term goals. I mean, most people, you know, they don't enjoy taking risk, but a certain level of risk is necessary to achieve your long-term goals. So don't use the excuse that you just can't take the risk anymore. You're going to have to assume some risk. So that was number two. Number three here is, you know, I wanted to live for today. Tomorrow can look after itself. You know, this this is often used just to justify kind of a reckless purchase. We see that a lot. Um, 
you know, you can live for today and mind your savings at the same time. And that's what you need to do. You simply need a budget that factors your long-term plans in along with having some fun today and then stick to it. So maybe make a budget that includes, you know, vacations and eating out, um, you know, maybe the, the, the fun thing that you want to buy, but factor all that into your budget so that you're, so that you're, you're budgeting for some fun along the you way. You got to have a budget though. <laughs> you got to have a budget. That's right. It's foundational. That's what, yeah, it is. That's what it boils down to. Okay. That leads up to our break here, but if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call. Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back with the Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with John Travis, who's a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor, along with us at Richard Young Associates. And we are containing our discussion here before the break about the top 10 excuses for making poor investment decisions. Guys, we've run into this all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, we see these examples where people, you know, just they just want to wait till things become clearer before they make a decision, before they make a move. That's never going to happen in the stock market. You know, there's always a very muddy picture out there about what the future is going to hold. Yeah, there's no one sitting out there holding a sign up saying, hey, time to buy or, you know, time to sell. It just doesn't work that way. It's never clear. So you got to make the best decision based on everything you know today, but you can't wait till things clear up. Same thing with, you know, risk. I mean, you you have to be willing to take some risk. I mean, a lot of people say they just can't take the risk anymore. They just want it fixed, but they're not being realistic about the return they need to accomplish their goals. So you have to make a prudent decision about risk and return in your investments. And then a lot of people will say, you know, I want to live for today. You know, tomorrow, we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow, but I got to live for today. Well, the fact is you need to build both today and tomorrow into your budget Mm -hmm. and into your long-term plan. And like you said, Steve, sometimes that's just a justification for particular behavior or something that they may be wanting to do at that particular time. That's exactly right. So if you have a budget and you build in vacations and, you know, going out to eat and buying the new car eventually, if you build all that into your budget, then you can do those things without having to worry about it and how to, how having to feel guilty about having some fun along the way. That's right. And, and it doesn't, it's not quite as much a pain <laughs> then anymore. Sometimes it can even be a pleasure. Exactly. So that leads up to number four here on the list. That's right. Number four says, I don't care about growth. I just need income. Well, you know what? Income is fine, but making income your sole focus, that can lead down a very dangerous road. I mean, just ask some of the people uh, that invested in collateralized debt obligations back in 2011, 2012. That hit them pretty hard. Uh, There are lots of different types of risks, so you need to make sure that you diversify beyond just high dividend paying investments, and that also includes bonds. Um, So you you can create income from capital gains and dividends. Most people, they also need some growth to keep up with inflation, so you can't ignore that because that's part of the fuel in the fire there that kind of keeps you moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. you got to include both growth and income in your portfolio. And number five here on the list is, I want to get some of my losses back. You know, it's human nature to be emotionally attached to your past bets, even the losing ones. 
But as the song says, you have to know when to fold them. You know, don't <laughs> don't double down on a poor decision from the past. I mean, if you sell out of a poor, uh, undiversified holding and reinvest it into a well-diversified portfolio, then you're most likely going to be in a much better position to recover when the markets do start back up. So learn from past mistakes and incorporate better diversification and discipline going forward. But don't get trapped into thinking that you have to fully recover before you make a change since that time may never come. I mean, many technology stocks still haven't recovered from the tech crash back in 2000, which was over a decade ago. So don't wait around for things to recover from a poor investment. And the next one here on the list is, but this stock or this fund or this strategy has been really good to me. So, you know, you want to hang on to it forever. Well, we all have a tendency to want to hold on to the winners much too long. But without a disciplined rebalancing strategy, your portfolio can end up carrying a lot more risk than you bargained for just because um, your employer stock might have done well over the past 20 years doesn't mean that it's not a dangerous place to be um, and to hold in an undiversified portfolio. So regardless of how an investment has done in the past, measured against a truly diversified, prudently diversified portfolio going forward, and make the changes necessary to get diversified. I mean, in fact, a quick story. You know, back in 2000, before the tech crash, I sat down with a couple that had about a half million dollars in a few technology stocks, and they had hit it big. You know, they they had tripled, at least tripled, over the previous few years in value. And I told them, I said, you know, I said, we're, we're sitting here, and this is before the tech crash, okay, just a few months before the tech bubble burst. And I told him, I said, you know, we're sitting here in Las Vegas and you guys have hit it big. You know, I said, so the question is, are you going to leave your money on the table and keep playing this game? Or are you going to cash in your chips and get better diversified? And fortunately, they did cash out and they diversified their money. And it was only two months later that the tech bubble burst Mm. and the NASDAQ index lost over 70%. Yeah, that was great timing. That was great timing. Because most of the time, people look at newspaper headlines to make decisions, right? Unfortunately. So one of the excuses is, but the newspaper said, you know, or, you know, Kramer said, or someone like that. And, you know, investing by the headlines is like dressing based on yesterday's weather report. It's old news, man. It is. It is. It'll get you in trouble. I mean, the news might be accurate, but the market has already factored in yesterday's news, and it's moved on to worrying about something else. So don't focus on yesterday's news when it comes to investing. It's only new information that will likely affect the market uh, or your investments going forward so we've 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 thrown out the stat before of you know the uh, professional predictors only get it right about 47 percent of the time so don't don't follow that exactly and the only thing worse than than listening to the newspaper mm-hmm. or reading yesterday's news is listening to the guy at the bar, you know, or my <laughs> uncle or my boss. Wait a minute. Now, what, if, what if you're the uncle that's the financial advisor here? <laughs> well, you know, you know that, that, might, that might be a little different. <laughs> if it's a diversified strategy <laughs> fund, right, but, right. you know, usually it's one of these tips about some stock or, or some strategy, you know, or that some, he read in the newspaper like John was talking about. Exactly. Or some prediction about what the market's going to do. You know, the world is full of experts, many who recycle stuff up they've heard elsewhere but even if their tips are right this kind of advice rarely takes your circumstances into account and public information is factored into the stock price 
almost immediately when it comes out. You know, it's only non-public information that's valuable for pricing a stock going forward, but that's illegal to trade on yeah, anyway. You can't that's, do that. That's insider information. Yeah. So tips are useless. Yeah, I mean, forget about tips. Those are absolutely useless. Yeah, and then certainty. I just want certainty. Have you, have you guys ever heard that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, confidence in your investment, that's fine. You know, having confidence in your strategy and in, in your investment, that's fine. But certainty, you can spend a lot of money trying to insure yourself against every possible loss or outcome, and that is just about impossible. You know, just look at the yield of CDs today. While you can't guard against uh, every risk or possible outcome, it's cheaper to simply take a diverse approach with your investments and assuming a reasonable amount of risk moving forward. That's right. Yeah, as they say, there's only a few things certain in life, right? And that's you know, death, death and taxes, taxes and, <laughs> you know, heaven or hell. I would, I would add that one in there. <laughs> anyway, all right, number 10 here on the list is I'm too busy to think about this. Well, you know, we often try to control things that we can't change, like the market and media noise, and we neglect areas where our actions can make a difference, like the cost of investments. You know, that's worth the effort to stop um, putting it off and make important financial decisions and make it a priority to plan for your future. So, you know, don't say you're too busy to think about this. You need to make the time to, to make prudent decisions and make these important decisions about your future. So most people, you know, they need some accountability and they need some help to avoid the emotional decisions that are justified by these common excuses. So get some help if you're like most people and you need to restrain your emotions. Given how easy it is to pull your, the wool over your own eyes, you know, it can pay to seek some independent advice from someone who understands your needs and circumstances, who can hold your hand, you know, to the promises that and hold you accountable to the promises that you made to yourself in your most lucid moments. So call it the no more excuses strategy. We are certainly here to help, so give the Money Doctors a call if you want some help getting your future back on track. All right, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question has to do with giving money to to grandkids. Um, Any suggestions? So I would say one thing, sometimes um, grandparents like to fund college. You can do ESAs. You can... You can do 529 plans. Um, there's other ways that you can help out. You can uh, do a custodial accounts is another option. So there's a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, I would say if the kids are young, you know, do a um, good diversified mutual fund. Let it sit in a custodial account for, you know, 15 years and, you know, watch it grow. I mean, I think there's yeah. a lot of different ways that grandparents can help. Well, and then you could switch that to a 529 plan. Mm-hmm. Or once they start working, you could take that money and put it in a Roth IRA form. Yeah once they have some earned income. So I think that's a great idea. But yeah, eventually you want to kind of tie that money up for a purpose, I think. You don't want to just leave it in a custodial account forever Mm -hmm. because eventually it becomes too much of a temptation. They could uh, use it for spring break or whatever. Exactly. Once they turn 18 but, you know, 21. I know a lot of grandparents have done savings bonds and you look at the return on those and mm, not real good. So exactly. You know, there's some different options. Yep. There you go. Okay. Well, this leads up to our break here, but if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or you can give us a call. Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard & Associates, along with us. And we are going to lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is caring for elderly parents while keeping your money on track. You know, that's a very important issue. A lot of... yeah. A lot it of people is. are uh, dealing with that with the pa- aging baby boomer population. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, taking care of your, your elderly parents can be tough on your emotions and, you know, your money. And it's even tougher when you, when it feels that you're being torn between caring for your parents and saving for your own kids' college fund. So, you know, this is an article from uh, from Dave, um, Dave Ramsey, and he gets into some of the details here. But, you know, the key is, is having, having the right plan. And in this case, it means saving for retirement first and then college. And, um, you know, a plan can keep you from being overwhelmed and making emotional decisions. So make sure you stay focused on that plan, stay calm. And, uh, you know, the first step in this process, which we, we've kind of already alluded to in another segment, is, is having a budget. And we, we always talk about budgets, making sure you have that because that keeps you focused. Um, you know, when you start talking about caring for elderly parents, it's, it is emotional. I mean, these are these are the folks in most cases that raised you, you know, from from, you know, when you were born up until, you know, being adulthood. So have a budget, you know, make sure you follow the baby steps, because if you can pay your bills um, and and you're kind of walking towards your goals, you can have a little bit of extra that you can help your parents with. So, um, you know, maybe maybe you have to work another job there. So there's ways to generate additional income that you can maybe funnel to your parents in times of need. So we're going to kind of look at what what this means. What does this mean, Steve? Yeah. So, you know, caring for your elderly parents, I mean, this is the toughest subject, really, because it involves aging parents and all the emotions that come with that. And it's important to have two things in place. One is a plan for your money, and the other is to have healthy boundaries while you're dealing with this. I mean, healthy boundaries means not letting anyone manipulate you to make you feel guilty um, about the situation. Emotions can run high when parents don't want to move in from their home or they don't have a lot of money saved. Sometimes siblings might argue about who should help mom and dad, you know. So in the midst of all that, you got to stay calm and don't forget to look after your own household. You can't really forego your immediate household and your immediate family, you know, to satisfy a, a sibling or somebody else mm-hmm. that's trying to, you know, maybe manipulate the situation. Yeah, right. And, and it's common for families to pitch in a little more when, when mom and dad get older. Um, a 2015 uh, Pew Research Center poll shows that 79% of Americans say family provides most of the help for aging parents and you know mom and dad may still be able to live on their own and and just need help maybe cutting the grass or you know driving to the grocery store or the doctor so you know make a schedule and ask family members or people from your parents church um or some some folks in the community to maybe help out so you kind of have a schedule so it doesn't all fall on on one child or maybe you know a couple of them so you have different resources that you can involve absolutely it's kind of more of a team approach there you know if parents uh, do require income in-home care, an assisted living facility, or a nursing home, look at their money situation with them and decide what fits within their budget and their needs. You know, this is the part that requires emotional strength, and it can really get dicey uh, sometimes because everybody wants the best, obviously, you know, for their parents or their grandparents. Uh, that may not 
they may not want to move or prefer a place uh, that's too expensive. Uh, they might direct uh, anger at you or, or, you know, some really heartfelt emotions mm-hmm. there. Don't let that bring you down. You know, stay focused. Uh, you're not doing anything wrong. This is just a case of you being, uh, you know, focused and really trying to help them. It's, it's about finding an affordable way to help them take care of their long-term needs, you know? Yeah, and you got to stay with facts. I mean, it, this this gets emotional. Um, it may take a while for them to warm up to the idea of getting help, so be patient. I mean, any assistance you're giving them while maintaining healthy boundaries is a blessing uh, to everyone. So if you're trying to take care of your elderly parents while saving for retirement and saving or paying for college, we've got some more tips for you. I mean, Dave is, is real adamant about staying on track on your plan. And um, again, this is where the emotion comes through. But if you're saving for retirement, it's, it's important to continue that for your golden years because, uh, you know, a survey um, recently reported that only 29% of households with someone the age of 55 or older, um, they don't have any retirement savings or traditional pension plan. So being older with no money is not a spot that you want to be in. So take advantage of the time you have now so that you'll be ready later. Otherwise, you'll be a burden on your kids. Exactly. You don't want to be in that situation. So here's what you do. You invest 15% of your pre-tax income Start with your company's 401k plan if they have one, and if they match your contributions, that would be great. And then move to a Roth IRA for the remainder of your money. You know, so fully fund a Roth IRA, uh, get your match in your 401k plan, and if your employer offers a Roth 401k plan, then put the entire 15% in there. That's what Dave Ramsey recommends here. You know, I don't necessarily agree with that, but at the same time, I think it's a great place to put your money. You might not want to put all of it there. It depends on your tax situation. Mm-hmm. But regardless, you want to get 15% going in there. If you follow this 15% plan, even if you're approaching retirement age and you need to work a little bit longer, that way you'll spare your kids the stress of trying to decide how to take care of their parents when you're older. Yeah. So, you know, baby step four is, as Dave talks about is saving 15% um, in towards retirement. The next step that Dave talks about is, is college. And he's, he's basically saying guys that these two steps are, are more important than helping your parents. And that's probably hard for some people to, uh, you know, agree with and swallow. But if you're not taking care of yourself and your family, that's an issue. And so college, once you're funding retirement, You've got to turn your attention to paying college, uh, you know, if you have kids. I mean, this subject causes a lot of stress for a lot of folks out there, even if you aren't the caretaker for anybody. Um, a 2015 Gallup poll reports that 7 out of 10 parents worry about how they're going to pay for college for their for their children. So the good news is, is you know, your children can, can help out on this one. There's some, some really good tips for current and soon-to-be college students. And, Gordon, yeah, we'll let you it's lead a, that it's off. It's sad sometimes to hear some of the solutions that people do come up with mm-hmm. uh, for assisting with college. I, I remember sitting down with a gentleman one day uh, who had, you know, very meager income, and he was just talking about how he was going to max out his credit cards just to help his son with, you know, personal needs and stuff. That's crazy. I was like, man, that is, that's sad, and that's not a good idea. Yeah. You know, and so the best thing that college students can do is they can really chip in. They can, they can get a job, you know, and help out. Um, it, It, you know, 
it'll take up a little more time, but they'll also become a little more responsible along the way, uh, and they can they can help with certain things as they go, you know. So, yeah, and you know, for kids in high school, I mean, you know, making a college choice is is huge. And so, you know, as we sit down with um, with parents out there with um, with younger kids in, in high school, I always encourage them to start um, coaching their kids away from four year institutions. Yeah, local yeah. school is a great place to go. But for you got to start planting the seed because I, I see a lot of times the kids get seniors and they're, they've had their heart set on Clemson or Georgia or Carolina. And, you know, those costs are, you know, about $20,000. And that's according to the college board. Um, but, you know, kids can also work. I mean, they can deliver pizza. Um, they can work at the student center once they get to school and they can make a big dent in that total. So, you know, you got to you got to have these conversations with your kids. Don't forget to check out the community colleges in this area. We have great schools, um, Aiken Tech, Augusta Tech, Augusta you, know, Tech right. you know, GRU. I'm not sure what they're calling it these days, but Augusta uh, University. Augusta University. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> so your son or daughter can get a degree from there and much lower cost, transfer the credits they earn to a public university a couple years later. And remember to have them you know, get a job now and apply for as many scholarships as they can find. So. Uh, yeah. Another thing with that, John, is that sometimes some students aren't ready to go like, full-blown you know uh part-time's not a bad option yeah because they just they don't know where they want to go they don't know what they want to do so sometimes easing into it is a online classes that's right another option as well so you know kind of summarize this article you know uh, uh, caring for elderly parents very emotional um, what dave recommends and i I agree with him you've got to stay on track with your your financial situation i would say with with elderly parents you've got to dive into their finances You've got to make sure you understand what resources they have. Um, you may have to, to um, start helping them write checks, making sure they're um, paying the bills and not getting scammed, if you will. Um, but make sure that you have your situation in order. You have emergency funds. You're kind of walking towards retirement, you know, working on that. You have your, your college as well. And, and I think Dave mentioned this as well. And, Steve, you talked about this boundaries. I think making sure that you have boundaries that, that you're, you're setting on the front end of it because very, very emotional emotional topic i see this really overwhelming you know families as they go through this so you got to make sure you do some planning on it yeah i agree you can't wreck your own family situation you know to help out um parents you want to help your parents but there's got to be some boundaries and you have to plan accordingly um how you're going to take care of your situation as well so that's a great topic. Okay, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey local provider, and Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with us. And we are starting off our last segment here with the prescription of the week. Yeah, this has to do with saving for retirement. And uh, you guys know that uh, Dave Ramsey recommends 15% um, saving for retirement. We obviously agree with that. Um, big step if you're at zero today. I mean, it's people that um, that go through Dave's course, the FPU class, 
Um, if they're not saving today and they, Dave says 15%, it's a little scary. So, you know, maybe take an approach of, of, of increasing that, you know, a couple of percent um, every month, if you can do that, or at least every year. So after, you know, four or five years, you're in the, in the, in the ballpark. But if you don't start increasing it, it's, it's never going to happen. See if your plan offers automatic increases. Yes, Some I've do nowadays. Yep. Steve beat me to the punch. Yeah. There you go. He's Sign right up. on. Yeah. There you go. Sign up for automatic increases, 1% each year. You know, if you're starting off as a young person, you can ease your way into it. You won't even notice it. But, yeah, if you're behind the eight ball, 3% a year, yeah. get it right up there very quickly. Yeah. So, um, But just do do it. Do something. Good point. At a minimum, 1%. That's yeah, good. Yeah, get up to 15% total. That's great. All right, that leads up to our last topic here, and that is um, what about the shrinking amount of mortgage debt? Um, what does that tell us about the housing market? Tells me people have been listening to Dave. <laughs> That's right. They're, they're actually, <laughs> actually putting more money toward their balances. Now. Yeah. So, you know, fewer yeah. homes bought, more refis uh, going on, older mortgages. That leads to some principal decline. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, John, it sounds like we've had some people listening to Dave and, and actually starting to throw a little more money toward their houses. Um but, you know, there, there's some numbers that are actually up uh, right now that we, we were talking about earlier. We good numbers in housing. Yeah, yeah great um, numbers. In fact, in January, the median price was up 2 point, excuse me, 8.2% mm. from a year ago. Wow. You know, in January. And that's the fourth straight month of uh, price increases uh, in the housing market. So That's, that's like the roaring 90s. <laughs> you know, yeah. so so things have have actually increased uh, and, and moved in a positive direction as far as pricing is concerned, and the actual number of of homes being um, you know sold there rose a little bit as well. But the big thing was uh, the housing uh, prices increased. So you know, getting back to the question, is a smaller amount of mortgage debt across the country a good thing? Well. You know, there's shadows that are still lingering from the financial crisis and Great Recession uh, from, you know, times past here uh, not too long ago. The New York Feds, they found this in some research that they've been doing here lately. Mortgage debt outstanding nearly doubled during the years uh, uh, or between the years of 2000 to 2006. Doubled. Mm. That, wow. That's huge right there. That's a lot. Uh, Six years, seven years. That's right. But listen to this. Since 2012, it's only risen 1%. That's a big change. That is a dramatic change. So according to you know data compiled uh, in the regional bank's quarterly report on housing debt and crisis, you know, that's, a, that's a significant difference. It really is. Yeah, these are great numbers here, great numbers of the housing market, too, the prices of housing that went up 8%. But this is great news about mortgage debts, I believe, because if you look just back in 2008, just as the subprime crisis was coming to a head, Americans had about $12.7 trillion in debt outstanding. It's a big number, but fortunately, that number is actually going down a little bit. Of that $12.7 trillion, $10 trillion, or about 79% of the total, was housing debt. Right, right. In the fourth quarter of last year, there was $12.1 trillion of total debt outstanding for for individuals. So that means that, you know, less, uh, half trillion less, or half, yeah, about a half a trillion yeah. less in total debt. Right, right. And the housing share of that had now dwindled down to about eight point seven trillion. So that means so, consumer debt has increased. So there's over ten percent right. difference. Yes. I mean, that's been paid off. Yeah. 
here in that that number of years that that's a great trend it really is yeah i mean one of the biggest contributors to decline in mortgage debt is that americans aren't taking equity out of their homes at nearly the rate they were in the prior decade cash out refinances and home equity lines of credit rose at a rate of more than 300 billion a year wow in those previous five years to the crisis in last year, they only grew at thirty billion. Oh wow! That's only so 10%. that's a ten a ten percent of the rate it was in the previous five wow. years of the crisis. Yeah, that's interesting. That's good. In, in fact, the small amount of cash out refis going on is almost completely offset by people repaying second mortgages and and HELOCs. So the kind of balancing out. But it's not just a newfound frugality that's keeping the lid on mortgage debt. I mean, the pace of home buying has slowed even as Americans are paying down their their home loans. So there's a couple of things going on here. Right. And, and like we said, the prices have uh, actually increased. So hopefully that's that's a good thing uh, because, you know, many people, they don't think that or they've had the misconception that my home doesn't go down in value mm-hmm. sometimes. And, and that's just not true. But, you know, the total amount paid against mortgage debt in 2015 was $288 billion, or that was, you know, 3.5% of the total outstanding debt. The last time that the total amount of mortgage debt outstanding was uh, $8.25 trillion was 2006. That was at the height of the boom. Um, that year, consumers paid down only $170 billion, or 2.1%. So, you know, we're well outpacing that mm-hmm. uh, now. In recent years, much of the pay down has come thanks to, obviously, you know, lower interest rates. New mortgages are, are be being lent out uh, with lower rates and existing homeowners have been you know consistently refinancing uh, to those lower rates the researchers they also note that as credit standards have uh, remained tight most of your new mortgages are going to people with excellent credit uh, enabling them to you know pay lower rates so you know the factors have been taken and weighted uh when looking at the averages and this is what they've come out to be you know 7.6 percent in 2000 to 3.85 percent in 2015 so again that's a significant yeah that is change yeah that's a very significant change you know another factor though contributing to the higher pay down pace of mortgages is the uh inventory of outstanding mortgages has aged significantly over the past decade. Ah, that's right. Yeah, so they've gotten older. So what's happening is as that as those mortgages age, it means that the payments are now going toward more principal rather than interest as the amortization process, you know, plays out. That's right. So people are paying more toward their interest. So since 2008, researchers note that the aggregate mortgage payments have fallen eight percent, but the principal payments have risen forty one percent. Wow! Yeah, that's so a, it's a lot more money going toward principal. That's a great place to be. I, I love it when people hang on to their mortgage, mm-hmm. get the stupid thing paid off. Yeah, be done then, with it, and then be done with it. You know, if you want to change, fine, go do it with cash. Now you got cash. Yeah, you got but, a lot more options, no doubt. Exactly. I mean, the shrinking mortgage debt is is a good thing. The the New York Fed researchers concluded principal paydown is a form of savings for borrowers. So the in the face of rising home prices, this means strengthening balance sheets for homeowners. I mean, this is important, of course, as we learned in 2008, just how crucial household debts can be. So paying off this debt is going to free up cash. Well, you know, and this is one of uh, some people's largest assets. Mm-hmm. You know, is is their home? Yeah, 
you know so you know analysis or you know some, some analysts they, they worry that America's equity is too concentrated in real estate you know and that was another lesson from 2008 crisis uh, that it can be very dangerous when prices of those assets plummet but you know it is a good thing that people are are Actually, they're gaining more. Absolutely, now by having uh, more equity within their home now. Yeah, it's absolutely a good thing. I mean, to have people pay down their debt, to have less home debt, makes them feel better. They have equity in their home now, so they're going to feel better about that. And now we have this data that home prices have risen. What eleven percent? Eight percent, eleven percent. I think were the two numbers I saw somewhere. But still, I mean. It's a huge increase in home prices. That makes people feel better about the value of their home. People are going to go out and start spending more money when they're, they feel more comfortable about the equity they have in their house. Yeah, and you know, Dave talks about um, paying off your home as baby step six. So right. sometimes people come in and say, well, should I pay my home off? And they still have, you know, they Other don't have debt. an emergency fund or right, they're not right. saving for retirement. I mean, retirement needs to be ahead of paying off the home as much as we like being out of debt, and so does Dave. But um, once you get through the retirement, the emergency fund, and the college, then you can, you know, start putting extra towards that principal and, Get out of debt quicker. You know, I I learned something last night talking with my dad that uh, really impressed me. Um, They paid off their home at like age 46. Wow. Wow. You know, and that put them in a position to really get after it over the next 10 Mm -hmm. to 15 years, you know, putting away money for their their retirement. And um, it's proven to to be very valuable for them. That's key. And that's that's. That's what I did, too. You know, I, I believe strongly in one and done. Yeah. Take out a mortgage one time, 15 years, 15 years up, you're done. You paid off your house. If you want to buy a new house, fine, but you do it with cash. You don't assume more debt to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there you go, one and done. That's one the, and done. That's the line for today. All right, well, that brings us to a close of this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next Saturday from 9 and 10 to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Hey, Have a good Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.